Now, canon law dictates, it's clearly stated, that marriage is assumed valid unless and until proven otherwise. What part of that is consistent with, no, you have to get a civil divorce prior to an annulment hearing? It's as though canon law said the opposite. This book is the answer to my friend. How did we go wrong? How can we recover? Where is there hope? Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. This podcast is sponsored in part by Annunciation Circle, a community that supports the mission of Ave Maria University through their monthly donations of $10 or more. If you'd like to support this podcast and the mission of Ave Maria University, I encourage you to visit avemaria.edu join for more information. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné. And today I am joined by John Clark, who is a columnist uh, who's written, I think, almost 500 articles for uh, the National Catholic Register and many other places, and is the author of a new book, Betrayed Without a Kiss, Defending Marriage After Years of Failed Leadership in the Church. So welcome to the show, John. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. That's great. Well, we're so glad you're here. And uh, this, the theme of marriage, I think, is so important uh, mm-hmm. to recover. And, you know, it's interesting if we think about Leo the uh, kind of at the beginning in some ways of the modern age of, uh, of, of our societal understandings at the end of the 19th century, mm-hmm. uh, he said that the family was the basic unit of society, mm-hmm. right? It's the basic, you know, that we're not individuals in society, but we're members of a family. Mm-hmm. And it's really marriage that actually makes that family what it is, right? So, and and in this book, you talk a lot about how marriage is being forgotten as a sacrament. Uh, so maybe just to start with, kind of almost provocatively, you know, I mean, isn't marriage just people's private, like, you know, if they fall in love and, and have a beautiful Taylor Swift song or something, <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Isn't that just their own private business? Why should the church make such a big deal about marriage? Isn't this just you know, between two lovers? Well, it's a great question, and you're right. That is how society is looking at it. I would look at it this way. I believe that matrimony is a primordial sacrament because when you start looking at how, uh, how the church functions, everything sort of begins with matrimony. It's not an accident that in the garden it seems to have played out that way, right? It's not an accident that in the Gospel of John, you know, Jesus began his public life at a wedding, there, there, there's a lot of tells here, and it's hard to ignore them. But realistically, the way that it is drawn up by Jesus, the seven sacraments are symbiotic, and a couple is married, they produce children. The children are probably either going to marriage or holy orders. And so from, from holy orders, you, you have pre, obviously priests who are marrying people, administering the sacraments. So we really need to go back to the idea that not only is matrimony a sacrament, but it's the primordial sacrament. Yeah, and... It is interesting when you talk about Genesis. I think it's funny. People get so confused or worried about Genesis and science um, oh, okay. <laughs> and trying to figure out, you know, how does Genesis, the story of the, you know, the seven days of creation, uh, how does this work with modern cosmologies and modern scientific understandings of perhaps some, you know, evolutionary aspect of the cosmos and these mm-hmm. sorts of things. Uh, but and, and, and that's an important question, and the church has taught a lot about how, 
you know, Genesis is manifesting mm-hmm. the order and goodness of the created universe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think sometimes we forget that that right at the heart of Genesis, especially two, is the idea that right marriage is revealed. It's kind of so not just is the universe structured and ordered and somehow good, very mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Not only is are human beings made in the image and likeness of God, but that marriage is something that is. Uh, really like unveiled. It's like within our fallen world, we might not recognize the beauty and dignity of marriage. And historically, many cultures have not. I think historically, sociologists or anthropologists will say, you know, like that basically forms of polygamy are probably more often kind of uh, practiced within ancient cultures or tribal cultures. So what is it that we, and I, I love the fact that you begin your book with Genesis <laughs> and, and, and to, the book of Tobit, right? What, what is it that we need to learn from Genesis about the nature of marriage and how it's so uh, maybe, you know, different than perhaps, say, our culture views marriage? Well, I look at it this way. So in terms of answering uh, what is marriage, what is matrimony, a lot of times when we try to answer that question, it's sort of a one-sentence thing. Well, here's what the catechism says. But the problem is, is that sort of the one-sentence answers don't really tell us the story. But if we look at Genesis, and we keep in mind that sacraments are restorative. So my idea was, let's go back and look at what did God attend from the, from the very beginning. And so we learned that the primary purpose of marriage is the procreation and education of children. That's very evident right away, as you're saying. We see that it's indissoluble. So, so the so the education of children, which we which we would probably a better word would be upbringing, because the Latin word in English doesn't exactly education is that about algebra is that okay? So, yeah. it's about it's about bringing up children to go to, to come to heaven to be raising saints. So we learn about uh, the fidelity of marriage. It, it's all in there, and I thought that is the best way to really understand what is it that that God intended from the beginning, and. The primary, you know, we talk about the primary purpose of marriage, but also the primacy of marriage itself is essential to a society. And that's what's being denied now. That's the problem. Yeah. And the other thing that Genesis does that I think is really fascinating, again, that people don't always pay attention to, is say in Genesis 3, in the story of the fall, we often, I think, somewhat have like a little bit of a grade school mentality about reading Genesis 3, which is we're like, oh, our world is bad and it's Adam and Eve's fault. (laughs) <laughs> um, right. You know, and so we're just like, oh, if only they hadn't done it, I would be okay. But right. uh, I think, you know, Genesis three about the fall is, is really more of a mirror. It is talking True. about Adam and Eve and, and this cosmic kind of cataclysmic event in early human history mm-hmm. where there's something that got off, right. That, that there's something wrong with us where we're, we're slightly crooked and right. bent and we don't, we, we don't live in a way that actually allows us to be happy and to be connected with others easily. But but what happens there is that we, when we look at it, what we begin to see is, wait a second, marriage is actually at the heart of the curse. Right. Right? At the heart of the curse is this idea that woman's pain and childbearing, in pain you will bring forth children, right? Mm -hmm. And you can think about that, all the, not just the pain of childbirth per se, but think about uh, the pain of having children in a fallen world who will die, the the Pieta in um in in you know in in Rome, Mary holding Jesus, Mary holding the dead Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right, every mother who has a child has a child who will die. So 
like right that 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 wound that happened there and then again the woman's desire will be for her husband mm-hmm. but he will rule over you so man is not meant to rule over woman he's meant to right they're meant to be equal and he's meant to guide and lead and then of course the man's work which he does for the sake of the family is now broken and wounded right you know the, you will so so our experience then of marriage as in this world is actually kind of a is a fallen vision of marriage. Uh, and then what the Bible does is, is, wait a second, that in the beginning it was not so. Right? That's right. You're actually meant to be in harmony with one another. But the Bible is very realistic in, in also, though, showing that right there's a reason why we need the sacrament. That's exactly right. right. We need that. And, and so I think I was kind of wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that idea because I think some people you know, criticize the church's understanding for being idealistic mm-hmm. and not really being, um, you know, not not giving due attention to the history of sin and brokenness and you know whether even abuse within families or different stuff like that and sure. and so it seems to me whereas actually what you get in the Bible is a very realistic portrait of fallen marriage as the normal experience of cultures and histories and yet oppose like behind that is this original order and the fact that then the way you described it the sacraments are meant to restore us to an order that isn't really part of our own experience (laughs) it has to be revealed to us Uh, so could you say more about that well sure and i think that one of the things to focus on in the book of genesis is is that you know we talk about marriages in trouble if you want to talk about marriages in trouble go to adam and eve i mean creation fell it doesn't get a lot worse. And when, you know, that starts happening, they're what? They're blaming each other. So the devil is trying to uh, make the couple, the temptation is to make the couple divorce God. He's not trying to get them to divorce each other, not yet. He's trying to get Adam and Eve to divorce God because, th- because marriage is a triangular relationship. But what's interesting is with all of the tumultuous things that they went through, and we, they're really incomprehensible to us, right? They never seem to have even considered getting a divorce. They never thought of it. And so as difficult as it was, they didn't consider it. And I think realistically, you make an excellent point in that, look, we're fallen, and yet we're expected to be married. God's command hasn't changed. We're still supposed to be fruitful and multiply. So his, his command to us is retained, even though we're fallen, right? And realistically, we need to keep that in mind because Sometimes there's this idea that, well, this marriage isn't perfect. How, how could we stay together? Well, we know it's not perfect. It's two imperfect people getting together and trying to get along. And mm-hmm. sure, it's two sinful people. But the reason that it's raised to the level of a sacrament, at least in, 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 in large measure, is, is to provide the grace to accomplish that. A grace that a mother doesn't even have to help her own children. It's, that is a unique thing. Matrimony is beautifully unique insofar as this is a grace that is given to these two people. It's, it's unique. There's no, other, there's no other relationship like that. And we need to keep in mind, of course it isn't perfect. It wasn't, we can't make a perfect thing as imperfect people, right? Yeah. It's a metaphysics problem, right? So that's so important to keep in mind because I think a lot of times people just want to give up because they think, no, it's not working out. We kind of know it's going to be tough to your very point. So and that's fundamental to keep in mind. Yeah, and I think that idea, if we think about what is a sacrament in, in some ways, right, you know, a sensible sign of invisible grace and what is the grace, 
The grace is not abstract. The grace is really the life of Christ. It's Mm -hmm. really the mission, as Aquinas will say, the mission of the Son and the Spirit in the the, the heart of the faithful, right? Mm -hmm. You know, in, in the person of the faithful. So Christ and his Spirit dwell in us through the sacraments. So, right, we have then, we have access to... Um, this strength, mm-hmm. but also the power of forgiveness, That's and right. to recognize that we can be forgiven. Yes. Right? Not only can we forgive our loved ones and forgive our spouse, but also we can be forgiven. And of course, the beauty of you know the the, the corollary there that I need forgiveness. It's exactly true, and I think one of the things that I've tried to stress in this book and the interviews I've done and the, and the writing I've done surrounding the book is this. We need to, marriage is about forgiveness in large measure, right? And, and so much so, I can make that even more concrete. So when I go to confession and, and have my sins absolved and walk back out the confessional door, my marriage is stronger for it. That's how Jesus, for lack of a better term, drew it up. I mean, this is, this is it. When my wife and I go to daily mass and kneel down afterward for a prayer of thanksgiving together, our marriage is better for it. And it's really beautiful when you think about the, the, you know, the connectivity, the symbiotic nature of the seven sacraments. They're all working together so beautifully. But you're right. We have to, we have to forgive ourselves, forgive, forgive others. But we, the sacraments are meant to be practiced together, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's how we have to sort of approach marriage is that we, we should be living lives of reconciliation, the sacrament of reconciliation, but also you know, human reconciliation as well. Yeah. One of the things that uh, you point out in your book and also is uh, mentioned uh, in the foreword uh, by Catherine Godfrey Howell, uh, I think who's a canon lawyer, is that Correct. right? Correct, yes. Uh, she mentions, and, and you, you you mentioned as well, this this interesting connection between the Eucharist and marriage. And, and in part, one of the ideas there is that just as we're having uh, kind of a crisis of belief in the real presence mm-hmm. of yeah. that uh, in, in the Eucharist, that right, that Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity are yeah. present mm-hmm. substantially, yes. right, you know, in in un, under the appearance of bread and wine, right? Uh, so that in the Eucharist we actually receive this is my body, mm-hmm. right, this is my blood. So, but that you're saying that that's paralleled with another crisis of faith, which is not believing in marriage as a sacrament, not only theoretically, but even just experientially, right. that, that my marriage or a friend's marriage or a parent's marriage right, are, are not valid, are not sure. substantially, Christ is not substantially present in those. So, um, to, you know, explain a little bit about how, how did you come to that insight <laughs> and, um, and, and how do you think maybe, you know, if, if there's a common root for uh, the crises in both, are there kind of common roots for hope in, in trying to heal them? That's a fair point. Well, I would say I would explain it in two words to keep it real simple. Words matter, right? So this is my body. That matters. That's real. I do. That matters. And that is real. And so the problem is if we're looking at it and thinking, is what really happened here? I said I do, but you know, it was 27 years ago that I really understand. Maybe we should start with the idea that we're not meant to fully comprehend the sacraments at some level, right? 
explain to me how, right? So, you, you know, so we need to start with words matter. If you're saying I do, yeah, but you didn't really. Was the confection of the Eucharist real? And so when Jesus, again, drew up the sacraments this way, we're not meant to question them, right? I understand. So in my book, I can see the fact that there are some marriages that, that never were, right? There was, there was something, there was a defect at the beginning that never were. Whether there were 72,000 in one year like that, my contention is that is not correct. That was the, and the Roman Rota has confirmed that. But, but the point is, the similarity between the two, or the, the, the parallel, as you say, between the two, is that words matter. And when we stop believing that, this will not, this will not stop with the two either. Because when the priest says, your sins are forgiven, it gives the formula for absolution. Do those, word, those words matter? Does anointing of the sick matter? We're going to start questioning all of it. We need to accept that words matter, right? And that, that to me, is the key thing. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Catherine Godfrey Howell. That, by the way, to my mind, that's the best part of the books. <laughs> so I thought, it was, I thought what she wrote was brilliant, and she, her insights in there were really, I think, spectacular. Yeah, and, and it is interesting. We are in a such a, I don't know, such like an, um, a subjective age, sometimes, you know, age of relativism or different things like that people will talk about, um, you know, Pope Benedict on the eve of his, um, you know, papal, mm-hmm. you know, mass before he was elected, spoke about the dictatorship of relativism. Right. But I think this element of if we believe there is a human person, the human person is somehow hidden inside the person, mm-hmm. and the words or actions they do are never really fully expressive of that. And so, it's the intention that matters, not what you do. You know, right. and. Uh, I think Catholic theology uh, erred in this, not not in terms of the actual teachings of the church, but but there were definitely theologians who, you know, you talk a little bit about humanae vitae and the massive dissent mm-hmm. around humanae vitae. Uh, and a lot of that was saying that the actions you do don't matter. What matter is the intention with which you do it. And... You know, so therefore, it's like, well, as long as in your conscience it's okay, then to have an abortion or to practice contraception really doesn't matter. Sure. Because what you say or do in the external world doesn't matter because it's only what happens in the internal world. And so I think this division, in a way, kind of runs really, you know, very deep, and it kind of does threaten, in some ways, right, the the moral integrity of of our lives and society, right? Sure. And also, right, I think you're right, and then the sacramental integrity. Yeah, that's true. It's a good point. Um, so, you know, tell us a little bit about, and I think, you know, for, you know, the audience, it's always like, how does somebody sit down and decide to write a book? Uh, so, right. How do you decide to like, you know, write a whole book about marriage? So, yeah. So about four years ago, a friend came to mind. He was having some trouble with his, with his uh, marriage and looked like a divorce and annulment might be on the horizon. And so he came to me, recognizing me as a friend who was, you know, a Catholic apologist and said, John, what's going on? What am I, what's, what is the church doing? What, what's, I didn't, he was just trying to find some understanding. And so he occasionally, this conversation happened over the course of a few months. And he would occasionally come to me with and say things that I thought weren't true at first. One of them was, and this was in a conservative diocese, right? He said that um, in his diocese, the bishop mandated a civil divorce prior to even having an annulment hearing. And I said, there's no way that's true. It can't be that. That's that's not the church I know, 
right? Well, as it turned out, he's correct. And I went on to discover that every diocese in America has the same, has the same policy. There has to be a divorce, a civil divorce, prior to an annulment hearing, not a finding of nullity, but prior to even a hearing. Now, canon law dictates, it's clearly stated, that marriage is assumed valid unless and until proven otherwise. What part of that is consistent with, no, you have to get a civil divorce before we even hear it? It's as though canon law said the opposite thing. That's kind of what started this process. And so I got a little curious, or I shouldn't use the word curiosity because Aquinas doesn't like curiosity. <laughs> I, got, I was wondrous, right? Yes, I had wonder. That's, yes. Well, studious is a strong word for me. <laughs> But I had wonder, and so I started researching this, and I thought, what, where did we lose track? What, where did we lose course? And not to mention the fact that I've been married over 31 years, and when I started this, it was, you know, I'd married quite a long time. But this book is actually the, the result of, this is my answer to my friend's question. What should it be like? How did we go wrong? How can we recover? Where is there hope? Because people need to hear that too. And so essentially... This book is the answer to my friend. <laughs> so that's that's great. Uh, we're going to take a minute break or a couple minute break, and then uh, we'll return and uh, dive in a little bit more to uh, some of the details. And I, I'd like to I, I would like to talk a little bit more about this, you know, mandate of uh, civil mm-hmm. divorce. So okay. we'll okay. return in a moment. Sounds good. You're listening to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University and sponsored in part by Annunciation Circle. Through their generous donations of $10 or more per month, Annunciation Circle members directly support the mission of AMU to be a fountainhead of renewal for the church through our faculty, staff, students, and alumni. To learn more, visit AveMaria.edu join. Thank you for your continued support. And now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the Catholic Theology Show. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today we are joined by John Clark, who is a columnist, Catholic apologist, uh, speechwriter, and author of a recent book by Tan Publishing, Betrayed Without a Kiss, Defending Marriage After Years of Failed Leadership in the Church. Uh, so thanks again for being on the show today. Great to be here. So we were talking a little bit about this civil mandate for civil divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, as part of the annulment process. So it just, you know, it occurs to me, it seems to me like one of the hopes for proceedings would have to be reconciliation, mm-hmm. correct? Yes. Uh, so, you know, t- discuss that a little bit. How does that, how is that a goal and how is that compatible or how does that work within the current system? Well, sadly, we, we could start just very briefly by saying that divorce is an industry in America. It's a, I don't know where it would rank in terms of the S&P 500, but it's divorce is an industry in America. So we need to realize that. The argument that is generally given as to why there is a divorce is mandated before an annulment hearing is this. The worry is, is that in common law, there was something called alienation of affection. And so the church is ostensibly, or dioceses, I should say, are ostensibly worried that if they find um, if they find an annulment, and then there's a divorce, the dioceses would be opening themselves up to being sued for alienation of affection. Alienation of affection basically is something applied to. Uh, it would be in like an affair, where maybe let's say a man has an affair with another woman, his wife could theoretically sue the woman for what's called alienation of affection. So the church is concerned. The dioceses are concerned that 
that would happen to them. Here's the issue. When I heard that, when I heard that argument, I again had a little wonder, and I wondered why this could be. As it turns out, and I actually did a little homework, and I called divorce lawyers, and I was trying to figure out, okay, what's the, what's the rule? Alienation of affection only exists in six states out of 50, which means that obviously 44 states, quick math, 44 states don't have this on their books at all, even in common law. And even the six that do, churches are never sued. Mm. So in other words, we're worried about a phantom. They're worried about being sued for something that a holdover from common law that is never employed. It doesn't make any sense. That, that is a commonly used. The second part of it is, and we've spoken a little bit about this, is that uh, tribunals may view um, a civil divorce paperwork. Well, there's the proof. These two can't get along. My argument is, in a, in a world where we have unilateral no-fault divorce, how does that prove this? And beyond that, when did we get into the despair business? I have nine children. They all have interesting names, but I'll just use two for purpose of this exercise. So I have a son, Tercisius, and a son, Demetrius. At what point should I say, those two are never going to get along? And by the way, they are growing up. They would argue. They would, they would love each other at the end of the day. And I'm like, okay, it's all good. We'll play, let's go out and play football again, right? But, you know, I think this whole idea, the backdrop is, well, this is proof they can't get along. What does that mean? That, that is not anything in the spirit of our faith. When do we decide, well, that guy's never going to go to confession? When do we ever say that? And yet, with this process, it's a commonly used idea. So those are the two main ideas that people have, and I think both of them are really, really awful, as it turns mm-hmm. out. So yeah. you you mentioned in the book that uh, just one thing I think maybe for our you know for listeners what it's it's interesting everybody talks about like kind of consensual sex these mm-hmm. days mm-hmm. and it's interesting the church says the same thing right all sex mm-hmm. should be consensual mm-hmm. but the only way to consent to sex is marriage mm-hmm. right which is why sure. you um, <laughs> but you stand up and at the wedding right it says you know have you come here freely um, do you come here for life. For mm-hmm. perpetuity and are you open to children mm-hmm. or, you know and, and upbringing them in the faith and then it says having declared your consent yes. you are now ready to so just w- walk through then so so a finding of a nullity would mean that w- some of those questions that were answered affirmatively were actually not or are there other impediments just so that people are aware of like just the, the sure no it's a great question so so the vast majority uh, is about psychological incapacity to consent. In other words, they were they had psychological problems so deep seated that they couldn't they weren't able to marry, mm-hmm. which I think is a very silly argument. And for, <clears throat> primarily because if that's the case, what you're arguing now is that man's nature has changed. So it turns out now everybody's everybody's kind of crazy. Nobody can get married. And in fact, the Canon Law Society of America, who is essentially from a monopoly on this topic, in effect. Their argument can basically be summed up as, and I'm only, I'm, I'm not being facetious much when I say the argument is basically, in this day and age, you'd have to be crazy to get married. And crazy people can't get married, so nobody's married. That's kind of the take. And, and so, so many of these things are, well, after all, uh, they'll, they'll go to age or like, how could you, you didn't have the psychological you know, capacity necessary. What's interesting to me about that argument is, until 1983, the Code of Canon Law allowed a 12-year-old woman to marry and 14-year-old uh, man. I believe now it's 14 and 16, right? So in other words, what the church is saying is that what, what level are we expecting? What level of maturity do we want, we need to, to show validity? 
Essentially, we need the average maturity of a 14-year-old. And yet, there are people that stand up at tribunals who are 50 and say, no, I was married three years ago. I didn't have the capacity. Marriage is pretty easy to confect. It's one of it's the easiest sacrament. Well, baptism is pretty easy. Marriage is pretty easy to confect. But that's generally the argument that is used. That it's generally that. And so Cardinal Burke mentions this, who was the head of the apostolic signature, obviously. He says, you know, the bar is set sort of so high psychologically that people are now are wondering, well, could I, could anyone marry? Do I have to be absolutely perfect psychologically? Well, who's, people aren't perfect physically. Certainly I'm not. People aren't perfect emotionally. People aren't perfect psychologically, right? If it's sort of, in my book, I talk about people, what if you have a fear of clowns? What if you can't get in elevators? They're, these are the sort of things that are brought up, and it, it gets a little ridiculous. I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't get ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So. so something that is in principle true, which is that, right, if you don't have the psychological capacity to, you know, to say I do, and to understand what it means, then you're, then that's like, but we've, uh, we've kind of reinterpreted it as something that is um, kind of like, I don't know, but you have to be almost like superhuman that's uh, right. to be able to truly do that. And, yes. um, and instead of leaving it for, you know, perhaps some cases when that is genuinely not mm-hmm. present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I think you, you can see that too, because Right. There has to be a basic sense for societies to function. And I think, again, this is partly losing something like the political, societal character of marriage. Marriage is a public covenant. It's That's telling right. the whole world right, that I'm going to have sex with this woman <laughs> and, ra- and raise the children that come forward. Yeah. I'm on the line here. Right. Yes. That's kind of what it is. And therefore... It's 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 public, and I think we've in some ways kind of privatized marriage, mm-hmm. and so it doesn't. You know, we we kind of somewhat have privatized everything these days. Privatized, <laughs> you know, religion and other stuff. Right. And so I think when we see that, then it's basically like, hey, there has to be most public, political, ecclesial contracts don't have that high of a bar. I mean, I don't know how to put it. You can't have, like, it should just be the bar, like, kind of, like, yes, you have to, obviously, there, there will be times when sure. when through, like, sev- you know, severe emotional or sure. psychological distress or or severe lying or, you know, force or manipulation or all sorts of different things. But mm-hmm. but I think that is a fascinating idea that that there has to be that, uh, like, that, that, that the normal expectation is that most of us are capable of, of committing an act of marriage. Well, that's it. And also, too, the church is not expecting a PhD in theology to be able to, to be married. And, and you know, Father Pilon, who I quote in this book, who actually was my doctrine professor at Christendom College, which is cool. Um, so Father Pilon made draw an interesting uh, parallel that I hadn't considered. He said, you know, so back in the, the 60s, when this was the annulment started to skyrocket, went from 336 annulments to two years later, it was over 5,000. So it happened very quickly. It happened alongside something else. And I hadn't thought about this until he pointed it out. The idea that no one can commit a mortal sin, or it's very, very hard to commit a mortal sin. I mean, after all, there are three conditions necessary. Who in the world has all three conditions, right? So it's interesting that marriage has those three conditions you just mentioned. Mortal sin has three conditions you just mentioned. And so the merit, the, 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 the confection of marriage is, all, is sometimes compared to the mortal sin standard, mm. right? 
so there's a parallel in these two, and I think that's interesting because it, you can't commit a mortal sin, you can't get married. Well, that, that's kind of the, the, the thing that the, the arguments are both being made for similar reasons. And I think the, the problem going forward is, for people that are listening and saying and not thinking there's anything worse that can come of this, the same argument could theoretically be used for holy orders. Can, can a crazy, can a, can a person who is psycho, you know, clinically insane, can they receive holy orders? Is it possible? That question is going to be asked. And that's not a conversation we really want to have. When you start doubting the sacraments, things happen and they're bad. Yeah. So that's where we are, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And, and there was in that same time period in the 60s and 70s, a huge amount of um, people that were leaving uh, religious orders and uh you know, the priesthood, good point. Uh, laicizations over, I think the same, I think the same kind of logic, mm. which is I didn't really know what I was doing. Right. And, um, and again, I don't want to make light of certain situations that are really, um, that where, where, where people actually are experiencing uh, severe and grave, you know, you know, mental uh, illness or struggles or different things like that. But when we, but we don't want to create a society in which I'm, I'm totally unsure of who I was yesterday. And I don't know what I did yesterday, and therefore I don't know who I am today. <laughs> well, you know, because true. that really creates a lot of, and in some ways, the beauty of the sacraments is that I can, my faith rests on the vow of Christ mm-hmm. that I, in which I share, because I made that vow of baptism, I made that vow of marriage, right. I made that vow of priesthood, and and I trust those, and that gives my life meaning and purpose. That's true, and I would add to that. It's a great, great insight. I would add to that that to your point about the fact that there were some marriages that never were, that only appeared to be. The problem is that if you're in a diocese, I'm not going to name a diocese, but if you're in one of the dioceses that approve 100% of applications for a nullity, and there are over a dozen, last time I checked, of such dioceses, they're all approved. If you have someone that should have actually had a finding of nullity, sometimes we look at them sort of, like, well, yeah, you got an annulment. Everybody did. That's not fair to them. And I think the system we have, to your very point, the system we have is not fair to that man and a woman who actually should have had a finding of nullity because we kind of think, well, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's real. That doesn't sound legit. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So it creates issues for everybody. It's a, it's a mess. Yeah. So one of the things I also appreciated about your book is that you kind of begin with this biblical vision of marriage. Uh, you even go through a little bit of uh, Henry VIII and mm-hmm, the right. uh, you know the a famous uh, attempt at getting an annulment and splitting right. the church over not getting one and all sorts of different things. And then uh, then you talk about this, but then you move uh, again forward at the end to try to represent a kind of image of how can uh, how can we make pre Cana programs more successful? How can the laity recover marriage? So it's really overall um, a vision of of hope. And, uh, and I do think it's worth <clears throat> just taking a little bit step back with respect to some of our societal things. And, and you talk a little bit in the book about even, I think, 1953, the rise of, you know, Playboy right. and then, uh, what, 72, Ms. Magazine or something. And I think the first um, art, the first, uh, you know, um, first issue that came out abortion, right? was about abortion. Right. And so there, we, we certainly have those things. But I think there's also kind of like a core conception of kind of this myth of romantic love mm-hmm. is uh, what I would call it, where it's not that we don't believe in marriage. Um, we like marriage. We might like marriage in a Disney movie. We like marriage in sort of things. Um, 
but it's kind of like we live in the world of Taylor Swift, right? right? That <laughs> marriage is when you are completely in love with another person, right? And have all we we've forget like distrusting marriage as a structure and mm-hmm. kind of just distrusting all institutions. We kind of say feelings are all that make marriages what they are. Sure. Um, so, what do you think's going on with the cultural kind of mindset that reduces marriage to a feeling? Right. You know, there's even and whether or not that's about like praising relationships or lamenting breakups. Yeah. Right. It seems to me there's something <laughs> in our culture that's sure. looking for something, but is is you know is 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 also really confused. No, it's a great point. I mean, growing up in the 80s, as we both did, right? So we had we heard our share of, you turn on the radio, you hear your share of breakup songs. I mean, we had REO Speedwagon, we had, you know, what, all these different uh, groups talk about breakups. But I think there's something different now. I think what's going on with sort of the Taylor Swift sort of genre, right? She's the most popular person in the world, I think, currently, correct? So- <laughs> I think more, yeah, more popular than Mickey Mouse, right? Or right, something. exactly. Yeah. Something like that. But... What's happening right now is I think the romanticization of breakups. I think there are a significant number of teenage girls that want to, want to date so they can break up, so they can sing along to Taylor Swift songs. I think that's where we are. And that, that, that creates a culture. So it's sort, of like, it's sort of like in modern films now we have, right? So you, the hero in the movie is almost, he's either James Bond and he's ever been married. He's, you know, been with, I don't know, three dozen women or, I don't know, five dozen women, whatever it is, right? Or you have the cool guy that's divorced. He's the hero. How often is the dad the hero of a film? You occasionally see it, but it happens so rarely. But when it does happen, it kind of stands out like, wow, that was cool. That's like a dad. He's got like kids and stuff. And Mm -hmm. he's the hero. And I think that is culturally disastrous because if children are growing up thinking dads aren't cool, like moms aren't cool. Like, no, it's a divorced people. And it's sad because it's in almost every film. It's been going on in a while now, but but I think that the Taylor Swift culture sort of adds to that, you know, and it's it's sad. Yeah, it's a little bit, I think, of um, chasing. It's looking for beauty and wonder, and, but not quite able to find it. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me a little bit almost of like a, a comet, so to speak, when, you know, a comet falls in, you know, or we see something or not necessarily like a comet, but like a meteor. Um, you know, it's like it falls to Earth, it burns, it's beautiful, and then mm-hmm. it's gone. Yeah. And so I think you're right. It's not some, I don't know that people are want to have breakups, but I think they, they think breakups are the normal process sure. in relationships. Relationships get really intense mm-hmm. and then they break up. Sure. And that's the normal mode. Instead of seeing relationships as kind of trial grounds for marriage. And once you enter into that, then it, then it stabilizes. Sure. And so uh, again, I think having this, this distrust of institutions instead of recognizing that, wow, uh, I think Chesterton says this in a way that um, he has a couple of, I think one, one thing he said about marriage, right, is it's a, uh, it's a duel to the death um, of which no man of honor should decline, <laughs> you know, um, but it is a certain sense in which that I'm going to, I'm going to work at this marriage until I die. I'm going to work right. at this relationship until I die. That's really what marriage is. And, but he also says this idea, uh, Lewis quotes it as well in Four Loves, but in a way that like, Eros or romantic love makes promises that only charity can keep, you know, like lovers do promise forever to each other, but only charity, only in a way, this divine 
this divine order, the divine order of mercy and forgiveness Mm -hmm. can actually keep that promise. I think that's true. And, you know, charity comes from grace. So all our acts begin in grace. And I think that the difficulty we put ourselves in by saying, no, you know, this marriage isn't working, not to discount again your point that there are troubled, terribly troubled marriages or or what seem to be marriages that never were. But we're sort of saying to God, the sacramental grace you're giving me is not enough. Well, actually, it is enough. What's lacking isn't the grace. What's lacking is the acceptance of grace. All that, that can be applied for all the things we do in life, right? And so ultimately, a lot of this comes down to a denial that God is, loves us enough to give the grace to fulfill this. This is what the, the, the discussion came on very early with this because the apostles, when Jesus said there's no divorce from the beginning, it was not so. The apostles were saying, well, what are we going to do? And our Lord says, because you'll have the grace to do all this and more besides. And that's still the answer for us. Yeah, and and I think part of that as well is this understanding that 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 life is filled with suffering. Life is filled with suffering, and that grace doesn't take away suffering, but grace gives us the ability to bear suffering. That's right. Without losing hope, you know. And it just seems to me that's kind of like. And I think there is an aspect of our culture uh, that wants to avoid suffering, uh, and um, and you know, and again, and, and the, you know, there there can be instances in which that's. Um, there can be extreme forms of suffering. They sometimes might need <laughs> to like, obviously sure. you need, you do need to like protect yourself, protect your children, et cetera. I'm not saying like, but, but the one way or another, our lives are still filled with suffering and it's kind of, uh, you know, on the cross, Jesus leans into suffering. And so somehow we, we're not going to avoid it. You know, when you run away from suffering, you just create more suffering. And so this aspect of acceptance, I think of suffering and relying then not on my own strength, but on the strength of the sacraments, you know, of baptism and marriage. And uh, it's kind of like the only way you could ever survive marriage is with the sacraments, you know, is it with it as a sacrament. It's true. You know, when I, I used to be a college baseball coach and I would always tell the kids, and I didn't invent this, I read this somewhere, that the diamond, that is the baseball diamond, defines who we are. I think suffering defines who we are, right? In, in large measure. We all walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What marriage does is it gives me a hand to hold, and offers my hand to my wife to hold as we walk through it together. But you're right. There's going to be suffering. Mm-hmm. But I know the problem is when people say, well, you know, there's too much suffering here. I've got to get out. There's this and that. Again, you know, our disclaimer that there are tr- marriages. But but realistically, many people are getting up far too early and not seeking reconciliation, borne out in the fact that the first time a couple sometimes sees a priest, it's when it's already in trouble. This is why I talk about priests coming to bless the bless homes. Get to know that. Get to know them. Saint John Vianney, I think, commonly had dinner with or visited his parishioners. He never traveled very far from his church in his whole life. He's the patron saint of parish priests. Why don't we take a lesson from him? Get to know the families. You know, help nourish their marriages. That's 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 the you know the foundation of the church. Yeah, uh, there's a. I love that image of having a somebody's hand to hold mm-hmm. through the valley of tears. And uh, there's also a great uh, this. Um, resurrection icon or ascension icon, especially mm-hmm. in the Eastern churches. But uh, Jesus is rising or is ascending to heaven and he has he's holding Adam and Eve by their hands and pulling them out of the tombs. And it's kind of like, that's like all of us. That's right. We, we, you know, that it's really Jesus that puts our hands together. And, um, exactly. and, and, and I feel like every marriage in a way somewhat has to kind of have that, that, that surrender and uh, that trust that only 
you know, only Jesus can love my wife the way the way I'm called to, right? No, and so that, that deep uh, that deep ability. Um, maybe just I love that you just mentioned uh, uh, home blessings. You're getting your yes. house blessed, which which is a great <laughs> way. I think it's a great little. Uh, and members of the audience who haven't had their homes blessed, I'd say it's a great way to strengthen, you know, your marriage and family life today and invite a priest. Uh, what's a, maybe one other just a practical suggestion that you might offer to people who are hearing this and maybe also unmarried people, maybe people who want to get married or just, you know, different things? Well, I would say live a sacramental life. I think that's a key thing. And so, as we've, as I mentioned, it you know the the seven sacraments are symbiotic. So, live a sacramental life. Go to confession more. Start going. Start going. If your if your marriage is going through a tough time, or if it's going through a great time, try to go to daily mass every day for a month, and look what happens to your marriage. I bet it improves. Maybe it's just that simple. I think living sacramental lives. Make sure you're in the state of grace. That's that's we you know that's the lifeblood right? That's, that's, that's the lifeblood we have. So, so, you know, go to confession, say the rosary with your family, you know, live a life of prayer and the sacraments. That's key. It doesn't matter where we are. I mean, I always say, I have a storybook marriage. I like to say, I've had a crush on my wife since Reagan was in office. Okay. That's where I'm at, right? Not everybody has that amount of, of blessing. Not everybody has, you know, been, been gifted quite with that. But if you're in marriage, my, my sacrament of matrimony is not better than yours, right? So we just have to remember that even, I have a lot of recommendations in this book, but even if, even if the, diocese, the dioceses ignore all of them, and they may, I don't know, we can take it upon ourselves to strengthen our marriages. And I think we have to, instead of, at some point, instead of pointing fingers, we have to say, okay, what can I do today to help my marriage get better? And ultimately also pray for your spouse. Well, thank you so much for uh, for writing the book and for um, uh, for talking about it today. Uh, I want to ask you three questions. I ask all my uh, guests on okay. the show. Okay. Um, so, what's a book you're okay. reading? What am I reading right now? Um, I'm, I, you know, my thing is I always have a lot of different books going on at a time. Right now, I am reading uh, a Doctorate Calvary by Pierre Barbet because I'm doing some research right now into the stigmata, and I'm trying to find out some highs, uh, some. Uh, hows and whys of that, but uh, Dr. Calvary, and by the way, I highly recommend it. I haven't finished it, but it's really fascinating, and the insights in the crucifixion are amazing. And uh, what's a practice you do on a daily basis to, you know, uh, find meaning and purpose in your life? One practice? Well, I do try to go to daily mass every day. I mean, here in Florida, and I'm, you know, we're in different parts of Florida, you probably get even more hurricanes than we do. Up, up, I would say up north now, if I'm in southwest Florida, up north is Kissimmee, um, but we try to go to daily mass. But realistically, my wife and I, before we get out of bed, we pray together. And I would say that's pretty essential to a, to a strong marriage. That's great. And uh, last question, what's a belief that you held about God that, you, that was false, that you later discovered? And what was the truth you later discovered? I guess I would answer it by saying I didn't quite ever realize growing up how much God loved me. And I think that Interestingly enough, I think a marriage helped me understand how much God loved me. In fact, I've actually thanked my wife for, how, you know, and I'll tell her, you've helped me understand how much God loves me to, to, to put you in my life. Um, so I don't know that, I, I don't think I was wrong about that. I think it was incomplete. And I think a lot of times with theology, when we study theology, we don't discover that we're wrong about things as much as we discover I was incomplete about this. I didn't quite understand the full, and I still don't get it. Like God loves me more, even in heaven. 
I'll never understand how much God loves me. I'll just appreciate it more, <laughs> right? Yeah. But, um, but I think that I have come to understand what those words mean more, and I, I hope I can go much further uh, in this life and then in heaven how much God loves me. I think it was just incomplete, but I think God is, by the grace of God, he's helped me understand that in a more full way. Well, uh, John Clark, thank you so much for being on the show today. Again, the book we've been discussing is Betrayed Without a Kiss. Uh, and I also wanted to mention, by the way, that yeah, you have two daughters at Ave Marie University. I do, yes, of course. Uh, so you're also an Ave parent. I am, and one of my daughters is majoring in theology. So, yes. Excellent. Excellent. Well, and uh, again, for those who are interested in the book, it's available at uh, TAN, T-A-N, Publishers. So, uh, again, thanks for being with us today. If you enjoyed the show, uh, please consider uh, subscribing to the podcast or and sharing it with your family and friends. Uh, so thanks again for being on the show today and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on the Catholic Theology Show. 